So I think that's the first time a taste show has been announced with a siren. <laughs> Beware. The Dharma is at large. <laughs> and might just burn the whole place down. Yeah. So today I... And please, sit. Come. Today I want to offer a talk that I've called True Gold. True Gold. And I want to dedicate this talk to Dave Commons, dear Sangha friend whose name we heard in the dedications this morning. And I want to begin with the words that I offered last night in the opening of this session, these great words of Dogen's. When you know the place where you are, practice occurs, practice begins actualizing the fundamental point, actualizing our lives, in fact, when we know the place where we are. And today I want to leap into this ground of practice. Because after all, we're practicing in a remarkable place, you know, not just in Australia, not just in Victoria, not just in the gold fields, in a strange little ramshackle, very sweet school hall that actually traces its history all the way back. I think it's to 1852, you know, right in the high point, if you like, of the goldfields. It's a very interesting landscape to be situated in, one with an incredibly rich history, a tumultuous history which is evident no matter where we look. You see the mullock heaps, you see the mine shafts, you see the coppiced trees, you see the ruins. You also see the regrowth and the splendour and the saplings and the golden bottle, you know, dazzling through the bush, even now in the middle of winter. I acknowledged last night that the Jar Jar were wrong actually called this place upside down country. Upside down country. It has actually literally been turned upside down. What was once so familiar, so dreamed, so lived, so pervasively loved has been turned upside down. Has been almost made unfamiliar. And yet here we are, here we are, sitting in exactly this upside-down place. And it's wonderful that Zen itself loves the dimension and the quality of upside-down. Zen's so skillful at turning the habitual or regular mind upside-down. Just when you thought you had a handle on things, the great siren of Zen starts to scream. <laughs> and you are reversed reversed in a way that actually stands you right side up, in right relation with the place where you actually are. So it's true that we are practicing in a kind of open cut, kind of wounded place, you know, a place that hurts. Yes, it has its splendor, but it hurts. It can hurt to be here. It can hurt to be alive. It does hurt to be alive. And the great 
invitation of practice is to not push this very instructive fact away, but inhabit it entirely and discover the freedom within it. So I'm going to investigate a little bit more tomorrow some of the implications and some of the healing that's offered by living in upside-down country. But today I actually want to zoom in on the fact that we are living in the gold fields. We are practicing here in the gold fields, in this field of gold, golden field of relations. I want to ask in that context, what is it that we truly long for? What is it that we are seeking here? What is the true gold that we are seeking here? And how might we realise it right where we are? So in some ways, it feels in the way that we gather here, we're a little bit like those original gold miners, you know, coming in from all corners of the globe, it was back then, but you know, here we are coming from all the different corners of our lives together in this place, seeking true gold. What an interesting thing to do, to come here looking for something, you know, searching you know, for something. And I've always loved the fact that the gold fields themselves, this sort of very place, was the area, or that was the context within which the Australian expression fair dinkum was born. It actually comes from the Chinese miners, fair dinkum. They would describe true gold as dinkum, dinkum, fair dinkum. What a beautiful gift this is, because after all, what is... Zen practice, but becoming fair dinkum. Now, actually becoming our genuine, true, honest, open, real selves. Fair dinkum. We're here to be fair dinkum. It's also not lost to me that the Chinese gold miners were also the first to actually introduce Buddhism to this ground. And they brought with them all sorts of strands of Confucianism, Taoism, but certainly Buddhism, it would have been a, a great sort of cocktail of you know, you know, traditions, beliefs. But there's still evidence of that around this country in the Joss houses and places like that. Very interesting. This is a rich place indeed within to practice. So this true gold that we seek, that we are, let's look into this a little bit more. And I want to do this with... A capping phrase, it's called, that comes from a book of capping phrases, from a book called Zen Sand. It was very traditional, actually, when somebody would work with a koan and present their understanding of the koan to look through this huge book of capping phrases and choose one that was sort of true gold in relation to that particular koan case. So here's just one line from that vast, sprawling book. It simply says that the blue mountains radiate forth a golden house. The blue mountains radiate forth a golden house. And we're in the lap of some pretty extraordinary mountains around here. We've got Lianganook, Mount Alexander, that way. We've got Mount Tarangawa, that way. And we've got Mount Franklin behind us there 
in front of us there, or upside down over there. <laughs> Mount Franklin, Malgambuk. We're in the lap of these great mountains. And they do radiate forth a house of gold in which we live, in which we walk and work and move together as a great radiant golden array. No one's left out of this house of gold. Everybody fits. Everybody belongs. The old teacher, Zhao Zhou, once said, I can make one blade of grass be a 16-foot golden Buddha. And I can make a 16-foot golden Buddha be one blade of grass. This is a man dancing in the gold fields, dancing in this great field of awareness that's playful, that's creative. After all, haven't we turned this building into a 16-foot gold Buddha? Just by arriving here and with our great openness to practice, we turn what might have been seen as perhaps prosaic or, or just some weatherboard building in the middle of the gold fields, we've turned it into sacred ground, into a dojo, a place of practice, a way place, a place to find our true nature. I was actually loving this when I was in the Hojo there before yesterday, just setting up, and I needed an altar. And the only thing I could find was a cardboard box just outside there, turned upside down. <laughs> cardboard box becomes altar. One blade of grass becomes 16-foot golden Buddha. 16-foot golden Buddha becomes one blade of grass. This is a thoroughgoing perceptive, playful, creative practice of which we are all a part. So how might we go about realising this for ourselves? There's a lovely koan from the so-called miscellaneous book of koans. It is wonderful to have a book of koans called the miscellaneous <laughs> book of koans. <laughs> As if they don't quite belong anywhere except apparently here in this particular little place. <laughs> miscellaneous. But it's actually a beautiful collection of deep teachings. And one of these teachings involves a character called Daoshui, who offered three turning words, three phrases for us to consider. And I'll just give the first one. He says this, you make your way through the darkness of abandoned grasses in a single-minded search for your self-nature. Now, honoured one, where is your self-nature? Where is your self-nature? Again, I'm thinking of if we're a little bit like those gold miners, you know, coming in here from all directions wondering, I'm here to find something, where is it? You know, we turn the world upside down sometimes to actually just make way for events such as this. It can be difficult to open up in just a weekend, you know, for practice. We're looking for something. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? There are all sorts of startling ways we go looking for answers in this life, looking for the gold of this life. I was amused the other day, I came across as I was waiting at uh, pathology to get a blood test, 
I picked up the Time magazine there and there was an article called um, Nine Wellness Trends to Ditch in 2023. <laughs> <laughs> Places to look for gold. They included things like diagnosing yourself on TikTok. Apparently, <laughs> not such a good idea, it turns out. <laughs> the other one was quiet quitting, which I remember to speak all the rage earlier this year. I couldn't turn on the news without hearing this quiet quitting, you know, fad that people are doing, which is apparently just kind of giving up <laughs> on work and just sort of, you know, almost dissolving out the back door of the office, you know, <laughs> quietly escaping your responsibilities. But the one I liked the most was um, <laughs> something that you can do with Kim Kardashian, if you're keen, um, and that's to pump vitamins into your bloodstream via IV, via a drip at home. <laughs> you can order the drip over the internet and get going, if that's your cup of tea. But fortunately, that's not what we're here for. We're not chasing some fad. We're not chasing some sort of cheap solution. A cheap solution would be a shame. What a disappointment to look for a quick fix. Now, why not walk the mountain path? You know, a path of appropriate difficulty, yes, and inevitable joy. That's the Zen path, a mountain path that reveals mountain after mountain after mountain after mountain. Up mountains, down valleys, up mountains, down valleys. Every glimpse that widens our view of the way is worth it, is worth it. So, luckily, as we travel this mountain path, the ancients, our ancestors in the way, have almost booby-trapped the path with a whole lot of these unannounced mine shafts everywhere, just like the country around here. We call them koans, but they're actually mine shafts to fall down <laughs> if you're not careful or if you're lucky. So one of the greatest mine shafts that's always offered on the first day of any extended Zen retreat is the mind shaft of Mu, the Koan Mu. And many of you here will have heard and encountered and worked with and even been brought to life by this Koan Mu. But I'll give it to you again formally because it is edgeless, it is an open gate to encounter the true gold that we're here to touch and settle and convey. So a monk asked Zhao Zhou again, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou said, no. It's such a tiny little story that doesn't leave a single speck of the galaxy out, in fact. The monk, who was obviously a member of Zhao Zhou's assembly, and Zhao Zhou never had more characters in his assembly than we have here. It's a small place. Zhao Zhou lived anywhere from 100 to 120 years old. He was an old, wise teacher. I won't go into his story now. But 
He was somebody so deeply seasoned in the way that not a single one of his words is to be overlooked or ignored. Not even this half a word or less than half a word, no. But this monk asks this question, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? It almost sounds philosophical, like this monk has a philosophical kind of mind, but there's actually a poignancy, I think, at the heart of this question. Something like, do I have Buddha nature or not? And perhaps even the edge of, am I worthy of Buddha nature? or not. After all, dogs in ancient China were not celebrated animals. They were deeply reviled. They were the lowest of the low. Does this dog have Buddha nature or not? Zhao Zhou says Mu. Or in fact he said Wu, which is how it would have sounded in Chinese. It's since done its own travelling through the wilderness, arrived in Japan transformed into Mu. And when it continues its travels into English, it could potentially be translated as something like no or non or not that way. Not that way. But none of these very suggestive translations quite touch the open, dark, mysterious space of Mu. Just this syllable it includes this no, not, not that way. But it has its own mystery because we do not try to give it an exact English equivalent. Instead we take it up as this non-syllable itself. So, what's Zhao Zhou doing here? This monk asked, does the dog have Buddha nature or not? And Jaja really has said, no, not, non, not that way, move. He's actually stepping right through this anxiety of the monk of have or have not. Has or has not. We can get so caught up in, do I have it or not? Have I realised it or not? Is this it or not? Is there something I'm meant to be doing or not? Is this true goal that I'm experiencing or not? To which Zhao Zhou can only keep saying no. No. Every time. This mu, as I said before, really is a mind shaft for us to fall down, for the knowing mind to fall down. I'm not sure if anybody here has actually fallen down a mine shaft. Is it anyone? <laughs> Possibly. I nearly have, I think, a number of times just walking through the, the bush here. It can be so sort of startling sometimes, you know. You're just walking through some of that low kind of you know, growth of the, of the bush here and all of a sudden there is a hole that opens up. So I haven't actually fallen down one of those, but I have actually ventured down some of the almost horizontal mine shafts, the ones that sort of move more gently down into the ground. There's a fabulous example at Quartz Hill near where I live. And I've taken the kids up there to go exploring this place. It's one of those great, you know, quartz, I'll call it an outcrop, you know, it's a big body of quartz rock. And somehow, miraculously, miners have chipped their way into this 
impossibly hard-looking rock and created this tunnel that, if you're adventurous enough, which I was one time, you can crawl down on your hands and knees, right down, right around a corner, right into the dark. So dark that you can't even see your own hand in front of your face. You can't even hear so much the outside world except for the muffled little damp sounds of being that far in the belly you know, of the earth. And then perhaps just the breathing, which just becomes so mysterious, this breath. There's no obvious body here in this deep, dark cave. And yet there's this life, dark, mysterious life that seems to be breathing itself, breathing itself, requiring no effort whatsoever. Every sense open and radiantly alive, but not clinging, not clinging on to bushes and grasses because there is just nothing to cling on to down there. It is an experience of empty, empty, body and mind fallen away. It was so beautiful down there, I was almost tempted to follow Bodhidharma's example and stay there for nine years. <laughs> but I talked myself out of it because there was dinner to cook and things like that. But this experience of the dark is so rich. You will have touched it in your zazen of just the veiled eyes and the openness to not knowing. Not knowing. Not knowing is the core of this practice. Letting go of that pedantic, grasping, needy mind. Letting that relax. Letting that go. And it's then that this dark can actually light up in a most intriguing way. And I want to give an example of this, again, from the record. Actually, not of Zhao Zhou, but from a collection of koans called The Gateless Barrier. Because after all, if we're honest with any barrier that we find, we'll find that it's already open. Always has been open. It gives way whenever we give way to it. So this is a case called Renowned Far and Wide. And keep in mind a sense of this deep, dark, empty experience that we touch in our practice. So a little back story first before I leap into the case itself. It really stars one of the great old teachers of our tradition, Daishan. And it features him as a young man. He was an academic, actually, a, a scholar of the Diamond Sutra, a sutra that perhaps some of you have read. And he felt that he was pretty knowledgeable. He knew the Diamond Sangha, or the Diamond Sutra, very, very well. He'd done all of the kind of footnoting and annotating and had made appendices and done all this sort of stuff and would actually preach on the Diamond Sutra. And then he caught wind of this very suspicious sounding thing called Chan or Zen, which was a tradition that seemed to exist down there in the south that apparently boasted that it had nothing to do with words or letters. That's not what an academic wants to hear. <laughs> so Daishan actually took it upon himself in great sort of anger, in fact, 
to extinguish this tradition that did not depend on words and letters. And so he decided to take himself off on his own grand journey up over mountains, down into valleys, a long, long way to find one of the leading exponents of this heretical strain of Buddhism called Zen, a man called Lung Tan. And when Daishan arrived at Lung Tan's place after this grand and very driven journey through many abandoned grasses, perhaps you might say, he fronted up to Lung Tan and said this. He said, I've heard of the renowned Lung Tan, which actually means dragon pond, this Lung Tan. I've heard of the renowned Lung Tan, but here I see neither dragon nor pond. Strong words. The old teacher Lung Tan just simply said, you yourself have arrived at Lung Tan. You yourself have arrived in this place. You're welcome. You're welcome. And it's not clear that Daishan realised at that moment how soaking wet he actually was in the pool of Long Tan at that moment. But it was enough to soften him, enough to actually intrigue Daishan, to actually go to the teacher's room and have a conversation. And this is where the case actually takes up, with these two men actually encountering each other with all sincerity. This is what it says. Daishan visited Lungtan and questioned him sincerely into the night. It grew late and Lungtan said, why don't you retire? Daishan made his bows and lifted the blinds to withdraw, but he was met with darkness. Turning back, he said, it's dark outside. Lung Tan, the old teacher, lit a paper candle and handed it to Daishan. Daishan was about to take it when Lung Tan blew it out. At this, Daishan had sudden realization and made bows. Lung Tan said, What truth did you discern? And Daishan said, From now on, I will not doubt the words of an old teacher who was renowned everywhere under the sun. This is a very moving case, a very beautiful case, a tender case. We see a man transformed from vehement denial into open, radiant wonder. I love that these two men are speaking sincerely into the night. You can see the sense of this darkening mind at play. They're moving together in company into the unknown, into the mind of not knowing. And I love that this very old teacher, he would have been very old and probably a bit sore. He's been sitting up for a long time with this upstart <laughs> student. He's travelled a long way. Why don't you retire? Yeah. Almost like, why don't you give me a break? have <laughs> done a lot of talking. But there's also a sense there of, why don't you relax? Why don't you let go? Why don't you just take a breather? You know? Breathe more easily. Let go. Which Daishan happily does. And 
It's then that he makes his bows, opens the blinds, is met with darkness. What a beautiful way of describing our very practice in Zazen. We meet darkness. What a beautiful thing to do, to actually acquaint ourselves with darkness, to meet, you know, to actually embrace the dark. To which you can hear Daishan can only marvel. He's, he's almost in this very fruitful, delicate state, can only say, it's dark outside. It's dark outside. Dark outside, dark inside. Dark, 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 all the way through. And it's then that the old rogue Long Tan manages to hand this candle. And just as Daishan was about to take it, as if it wasn't dark enough, the candle is blown out. And Daishan has realization. So the question is what did he realize? What did Daishan realize in that moment? Perhaps one way of speaking about this, and of course Zen is not founded on words and letters, it is all about the experience of being here, but perhaps one way of speaking about this is to acknowledge that in just such a moment, the deep, dark of Mu, the deep, dark of No, becomes the bright, luminous Yes. No becomes yes. And it's worth acknowledging that Zhao Zhou, when he was asked this question about the dog, which was asked on more than one occasion, in fact it was obviously just a bit of a favourite question of his sangha, you know, let's ask Zhao Zhou about the dog again. <laughs> See what he says this time. Because one time, a monk came up and said, does the dog have Buddha nature or not? And Zhao Zhou said, ooh, or yes, yes. Yes. And perhaps by now you're beginning to see that this life of yes and no, being caught in this sort of teeth or in the jaws of yes and no, they are wonderful gates of practice, but they are open gates to fall through, not to remain idle at. We don't go standing idle at the gate, we walk right through. That's our practice. And I was interested actually because of this session and being in this place that this word no, this mu, this word no, is actually central to all of the indigenous languages of Victoria. For instance, Woiwurrung, you know, the language of Melbourne, actually is translated as no language, no tongue. It's almost a beat of the Heart Sutra there. No eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. It's no language that they speak. And apparently this is true for all of the languages and, and groups that radiate out. I'm calling it radiating out from Melbourne, but of course it is that field of connections you know, in, in the indigenous world. And all of that is true, all of these no languages are interacting with each other, except for one. There is one place, and that is the Jaja Wurrung language, which actually translates as yes, yes language. So we are actually sitting here on yes, yes country. This is a place 
to which to say yes, yes, to accept, to embrace, to be embraced by this great yes, which is access to the great no. So we can actually start to walk through every gate of yes and no that may appear. And there's a beautiful poem actually by Mary Oliver that's actually called Yes, No. <laughs> and it goes like this. She just says, Yes, No. Oh, actually, I've started a little bit. No, she actually starts somewhere else. She says, How important it is to walk along, not in haste, but slowly, looking at everything and calling out, yes, no. The swan, she says, for all his pomp, his robes of grass and petals, wants only to be allowed to live on the nameless pond. The catbriar is without fault. The water thrushes down among the sloppy rocks are going crazy with happiness. Imagination is better than a sharp instrument. To pay attention. This is our endless and proper work. A retreat like this is a ritual of attention. We give ourselves over to this lovely act of paying attention to saying yes, no, and walking right through those barriers into our real life, into the gold fields that I touched on before. And I want to offer actually a kind of homegrown koan, if you like, from this place. Some of you will know that it was in Jaja Wurrung country, in this yes, yes country, that the largest ever gold nugget was found. I think it was weighed something like 97 or so kilograms, which is more than me. Perhaps it's actually the weight of a 16-foot golden Buddha. <laughs> <laughs> the exact weight is 97.14 kilograms, if you needed to know. But this nugget, this great discovery, this great encounter, was actually called the Welcome Stranger. What a beautiful koan, actually, to take to heart. Welcome, stranger. These words can actually find their sort of resonance with the yes and the no. The yes of welcome and the no of stranger. It's an invitation to welcome everything that appears, just as it is, without trying to name it, without trying to know it, almost honouring it more completely by seeing it as stranger, as unknowable, finally. I look at the trees out there and think, welcome, stranger, welcome to my life. Welcome, stranger. I don't know what you are. I can't say what you are. To describe you would be to diminish you. And to that I say no, non, not, not that way. To this welcome stranger, 
this has a strong resonance with you are welcome here. Whatever appears is welcome here, in this very place. And that includes all of the difficulties that we might find, all of the joys, of course. We had breakfast this morning with these magpies just chortling that brilliant song that they do. Nobody cannot be thrilled you know, by the magpie song. But there's everything else that can be found here. This is a tender time in this particular session. And that tenderness is welcome. The strangeness, the unfamiliarity of that can be welcomed and recognised as deeply familiar. There is something so deeply familiar about this practice and this path. Rumi describes this practice of welcome stranger in a beautiful way, in a poem that he just calls The Guest House. And he says this, This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if there are a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house and sweep it empty of furniture. Still treat every guest honourably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So each stranger is a guide to what? Well, only to your true self. Only to the fact that you are completely empty and completely here. That form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness exactly form. These are not two. Our practice here is to move into this world and realise gold, 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 gold. Wherever we look, wherever we touch, whatever we feel. This is the radiance of practice. I love that gold is not dazzling. It has a warm, generous luster. Something to be deeply appreciated and savoured, in fact. So, all of this practice and this time that we have together is really given to us to recognise that we are a golden Buddha, each one of us, in a golden house. So enjoy your practice and know that you are welcome. Thank you for your trouble. <laughs>